Welcome to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I am Francine Belay, your host, digital strategist specialized in corporate and personal branding. I am also a speaker and author of the book, Personal Branding in the Digital Age, How to Become a Noon Expert, Thrive and Make a Difference in a Connected World. I am super, super thrilled to bring you inspirational stories, strategies, and practical tips to get more meaning in your life, make more money, and lead a movement to change the world. I am on a mission to help you to connect to your true identity, find your unique value, and become a leading voice in your marketplace. Do you know where you currently are on your way to making an impact in the world? Are you visible to your ideal audience and recognized as an expert to those who matter? How likely are you to attract lucrative opportunities rather than chase them? Well, take the personal branding test to pinpoint exactly which of the seven pillars of the personal branding framework, Yannick, you should focus on immediately to create an influential personal branding. This personal branding test will reveal to you which pillars you should focus on in priority to create more meaning in your life, earn more money, and make a bigger impact. To access the free personal branding test and start boosting your influence, go to francinebelay.com slash test, that's F-R-A-N-C-I-N-E-B-E-L-E-Y-I.com slash test. Today, I have the great pleasure to have on the show Heather McGon, international keynote speaker on the future of work and the future of learning. She also helps corporate executives to rethink and reframe their business model and their understanding of teams and organizational structure to be resilient and successful in changing markets. So Heather is also the co-author of the book, The Adaptation Advantage, Let's Go Learn Fast and Thrive in the Future of Work. I have spotted actually the book on Amazon last week, and I thought that I had to interview Heather, and here she is. So the book is fascinating, and it covers many aspects of personal life and professional life, and also provides a lot of keys on how to adapt in this fast, fast moving world. And, you know, this is even more pertinent as the world has changed so much since COVID-19. And we need to learn how to adapt and thrive in this current environment. Well, Heather, welcome to Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Hi. So I'm really excited, as I say, to have you on the show. And I have 10,000 questions and my computer didn't want to work earlier, but hey, here we are. So congratulations for writing such a terrific book and timely, a very timely book uh, with uh, your co-author, Chris uh, Shipley. Um, Normally, I'll ask you to tell me what you do, but I have read your book. (laughs) (laughs) And I understand how this is part of the problem. So my question will be different. So I'm going to ask, what is your purpose? (laughs) So I have, at this point, 
in my life. I think your, your purpose manifests in different ways over the course of your life. But at this point in my life, my purpose is to help people understand and adapt to rapidly unfolding change and understand how they connect their own purpose to what they do every day. Because we have, we've coming out of multiple decades of time in which we asked little kids what they wanted to be when they grew up. We asked university students to pick a major before they step foot on campus. And those who didn't go to university just pick a future self and work towards it. And then we ask each other, what do you do? And all of that focuses on a singular what, which is really about the application of skills and knowledge at a moment in time. And now that moment of time is compressed and things, the velocity of change is so much faster. And then at the same time, our career arcs are so much longer. So the idea of asking somebody what they do or what they want to be when they grow up or what their university major or their focus of their professional development is going to be is increasingly absurd. So we have to think about why and how we do the things we do, which is connecting to your curiosity, which is really going to be the motivational driver to allow you to learn and adapt for life. Mm. Yeah, so I'm going to come back to that actually yeah. in a moment. Um, so you say that we also need to reclaim purpose, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, which obviously used to be uh, reserved for uh, elite in the time. Right. And, and understand people's purpose rather than asking them what they do. And my question is straight away, how do we find this purpose? <laughs> yeah, it's a daunting it's sort of a daunting prospect and yet you're right. It was sort of the domain of the elites or the entitled to sort of pursue a life of self-expression and everybody else worked. And the reality is work is self-expression and work is yeah. going to change a lot and the career arc is going to be longer. So it's best we connect to what lights our fire. And so when I talk to people about purpose, I don't say, you know, it's not like you're going on this search to find this rare piece of sea glass on the beach, but instead it's, put yourself in as many circumstances as you can and think about yourself like a prototype. That's what um, Kate O'Keefe from Cisco's Chill uh, told us when we interviewed her for the book, that think about yourself as a prototype in beta, always putting it into experiences for feedback. And my friend Annalie Killian says that it's, a, it's an editing process to put yourself into as many experiences as you can and sort of edit what you want to do in the future. And so one simple way I, I tell people to think about it in their current job or whatever it is they may be doing is make a list of what you do every day at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, whichever is your preference. And then after a period of time, whether it's a week or a couple of weeks, however long you can do this sort of short journal exercise, at that, when you're making that list at the beginning or the end of the day, beginning for the day before, end of the day you just um, worked, circle and pay attention to the things that gave you energy, that you woke up thinking about, woke up excited about, that you worked on when you didn't have to. You moved them up on the priority list. They weren't due yet, but you started working on them and you put off some other things that were due. And try to shape your job more towards those things that give you energy. And that's really just following your curiosity and paying attention to what motivates you. That's just a starting point. And then put yourself in as many experiences as you can. If you're miserable, change jobs. <laughs> yeah, I'll, actually, I was going to ask you, actually, uh, especially during this time when so many people have lost their job, yeah. how can they actually, and then they may be thinking that, you know, they have just uh, perhaps are looking to put food on the table. How can yeah, they yeah. both trying to put food on the table and find, be frantically out there and finding the next job and also find something that is purposeful and that they love? How can yeah. they 
solve that challenge. Yeah. So let, let me address that first of all. So Chris and I wrote the book in a period of pretty extreme abundance. We didn't realize it at the time. There were certainly still people left behind, but far fewer people were left behind in October 2019 than there are in April 2000, May 2020. So first and foremost, my heart goes out to everybody who's struggling right now, which is a tremendous number of people. And mm -hmm. so I'm not suggesting if you're trying to put food under your table to scrap your job and, and follow your bliss. Right now, we're all doing the best we can. So we've moved from a period of like pretty extreme abundance to pretty extreme scarcity in, in short order. We won't be here forever. Um, I still think purpose has a role. I think maybe even a greater role. Um, yeah. Things you can do now, I mean, I don't want to tell you to do one more thing right now. Um, one of the things that um, I've noticed when I've been doing talks over the last couple of months is the first thing I say to people is, thank you. Thank you for everything you've done already because you've done a massive amount of adaptation very quickly. Mm -hmm. In the first two weeks or so after the World Health Organization declared it a global pandemic, we shifted universities, K-12 systems, all entirely online, like overnight. And faculty who didn't want to or didn't have experience or were nervous about teaching online, they did it and they're doing really, really well considering, you know, how fast it's happened. Yeah. You know, companies that have uh, gone immediately to work from home and redistributed uh, workforces, companies remapping supply chains, pivoting their product lines, and then parents out there, this is Monday, Mother's Day was yesterday, but it's still Mother's Day in my mind because mm -hmm. a lot of working moms out there. Um, you become teach and, and dads. I didn't mean to leave out dads. It was Mother's Day yesterday. <laughs> you all become teachers overnight too. So I, I sort of feel funny asking somebody to do one more thing. Mm -hmm. But given all that, if you have time right now, first of all, if you lost your job, it's a grieving process. Allow yourself to grieve. You've lost a big part of who you are, and you've got to find your way back to being whoever you're going to be next. And that's not easy. Uh, but in that process, there's an abundance of free stuff online that you can start exploring. You can start taking courses, many of which are free, that kind of stuff you can do. But I don't want to put the burden on somebody to say you've got to do one more thing right now because I first want to acknowledge how much people have already done and how much people are dealing with. We are in the middle of a global crisis. So we start by saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's great. And then I'm going to come back to that kind of uh, job loss thing uh, later yeah. on in our conversation because, yeah. yes. I, I, you know, it's good to kind of address and, and clarify also what you are saying and, and put that back into the context yeah. that we are in today. Um, so, and um, actually, how did you end up now, uh, I want to ask you, working in this field of the future of work, the intersection of future of work and future of learning, um, you know, how did you find yourself doing this? Yeah, well, so there was a job posting for a future work strategist, and I no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I always say to people is that it didn't exist, I created it. So, you know, there wasn't an application for anything. I didn't study for this. I didn't, you know, it's just I paid attention to things around me. Um, I paid attention to things where I, uh, places where I found that I had a perspective and I had some competencies. So, um, Charlie, to go back like maybe 15 years or so, I um, was doing, I have an undergraduate, well, further back than that, I have an undergraduate degree in industrial design, which is really design thinking before that we had the word for it. I have an MBA with a focus on entrepreneurship and finance. So I had those two pieces of education in my background, and I had worked mostly in corporate in my life. 
And about 10, 15 years ago, I started doing some work in higher education for universities. I worked for university presidents and provosts. Just by chance, I sort of fell into it. And I started realizing at the time I was also uh, consulting for corporate clients that the corporate clients were not getting the talent that they needed because most of the corporate clients I was working with were in white space exploration or new product development, new services, that sort of thing some management consulting. And then on the, on the university side, they were trying to come up with new packages to prepare people for the future of work, which is essentially like, what are the skills I need to codify and transfer into a student to make a new deployable workforce? And it struck me that the problem was precisely that. Mm-hmm. The idea that I need to just download one set of skills in you and you'd be okay for life doesn't make sense anymore. The world's moving too fast. And the only people I saw out there talking about the future work were largely dystopian catastrophists that said the robots are coming and humans are going to be a useless class. And I didn't see it that way. So I saw those sort of three tension points. And I started um, sort of doing talks for my clients, my university clients and my corporate clients, sort of explaining the world as I saw it. And they were eating it up. And then uh, a friend of mine recommended that I start writing. And so I wrote um, a four-part series on LinkedIn in 2014 called Jobs Are Over, The Future is Income Generation, to sort of shift people's mindset into you have to think about yourself as a value creator every single day, as opposed to training for a set job and a set identity. And 100,000 people read the second part of that in like 24 hours. And I started getting speaking requests literally from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first one was in Australia for Annalie Killian uh, at uh, AMP. And the video of that went viral. I started getting more speaking requests. I started writing more. Um, I write for Forbes now. I was writing a book back then. I'm writing another book now. And then I started getting picked up by speakers agents and speaking all over the world starting in like 2017. And so that's how my job evolved. Mm, yeah, so that's great. So, you know, you are just like the the real example of, uh, you know, just creating things by paying attention, what yeah. actually you are preaching, right, in your book as well. Uh, and uh, yes, really pay attention. So one of the questions actually also that you ban or <laughs> that you don't like um, us to ask is also, you know, uh, in your universe that we need to ask kids is what do you want to do when you grow up? And actually... You have, um, you know, defended and 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 write a lot about in your book. Um, but what should we ask instead? Because when actually we ask people, what do you want to do when you grow up? Um, what 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 do we need to ask them instead of asking them this question? What are you interested in? Just ask them what they're interested in. I have. Um... One nephew and uh, four nieces aging uh, in ages from four to 20, almost 21. And so that's, I, I, they're, the older ones are getting pushed to pick a major and stick in their lane and all this absurdity at university. Um, the little kids are starting to get the, what do you want to be when you grow up question? In fact, they, um, she's eight now, she was four at the time. She inspired me, Izzy, to start looking at those questions because she was at, she had a career day at school at the age of four. She wanted to be a unicorn. I said, that's great. She said, Auntie Heather, the teacher doesn't think so. She told me it wasn't realistic. And I thought, my God, what are we doing to the next generation? Um, so she, it's the interactions with the children in my family, the next generation that made me realize well, we're way off course and we're asking all the wrong questions. 
Um, so when I speak to them, because um, I don't have kids myself, when I speak to them regularly, I spoke to them yesterday, I said, what are you guys interested in? What's the coolest thing you did today? What questions do you have? What are you reading about? They're probing and exploring their world all over the place. It's, it's us that puts these artificial kind of labels and boxes around them that limits their creativity creativity and their fire their their energy yeah actually when i read that uh, that part i asked my niece my niece this morning i asked her she has done a master degree in accountancy mm -hmm. and i asked her what actually you are interested she is interested in drawing and she draw <laughs> fashion kind of thing yeah. and i asked which one would you like? Would you like rather, you know, um, doing fashion and doing like dresses or accountancy? Definitely she like uh, fashion. But again, you know, when we think about that, when we think if we put some kind of economist hat in our, you know, and if we, we let everybody in the country you know, just go about what they are interested and then just do some art and things like that. Some economy will say, okay, this country needs some scientists. Why are we not training scientists? I know that this is like some kind of tension between a country of the kind of workforce it says that it needs for, you know, to get, you know, to where they want to go, to the vision of the country. Uh, and then uh, let people just being interested to be unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> zebras <laughs> things of that how can we do this <laughs> well i think at the age of four you can be a unicorn if you want to um at the age of 40 it might be odd <laughs> but um i i think that people naturally there are lots of people who are naturally interested in science but maybe they're told they weren't good enough at it i mean we set all sorts of barriers up that prevent people from achieving their potential um, if your niece is interested in fashion, but she's got a competency and she's got real uh, quantitative skills, there are other ways she could marry those things together. And I also say in the books, particularly when I go through the adult learning mindset stuff, is that it's not just about following your passion without any sense of the world. I mean, you have to understand market context. You have to understand business models. You have to understand you know, the life that you're going to provide for you and your family and how that works out. So you can't decouple your purpose from economic realities. You just, I'm just asking you to think about aligning them. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we, you know, sort of uh, download and transfer this set of skills into somebody so they can get this set job, like it's not going to change. We've got so many folks out there who are working in jobs that don't understand the business model, of the organization for whom they work. And so when that business model changes, they no longer fit and they don't know why. We need alignment between your personal passion, your values, your business model, how you create value, how the organization you engage with creates value. So there's alignment there. And when the organization you work with, business model inevitably changes, which it will, you can change with it or ahead of it. Mm, yeah 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 so now so um you know i don't i know that you don't you know you, you you are not framing your thinking that way but when you think of um yourself when you were very young or a kid which job did you want to do at the time <laughs> yeah i mean i would have to ask my mother what i wrote on those little forms at school that says when i grow up i'm going to be a teacher or fireman or you know all those kinds of things um i remember being younger and realizing the power of humor and mm. so I remember making my parents' friends laugh, and I thought, this is really powerful. Maybe I'll be a comedian. Ah, 
It's not, it's close to what you're doing right now, because I've seen some of your talks, you, you know, your talks are quite entertaining as Mm -hmm. much as they are very factual and very, um, um, you know, um, value driven. It's also kind of fun. So perhaps you have married that comedian. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, so can you tell me what is one thing that people don't know about you? Um, let me see. I never, ever thought I would speak for a living. Never. Ah. Never anywhere on my radar. Um, I don't know how many people know that or not. I remember I had to do like a poetry reading thing in grade school and my, you know, my hands were shaking and the paper was shaking. It made me so nervous. Now I've, I have, I have not been nervous about speaking in many years, but it never is something that was ever on my radar screen. Mm-hmm. So, so now um, let's talk about meaningful work, meaningful life. Okay. When did you realize who you are and your purpose in life? I think that's a lifelong process. I think I've found some facets. I'm not sure I found all of them. Um, I probably figured out this particular chapter I, I'm in now probably five years ago. Uh, I was in other ones. I've had many different chapters. I started designing baby products. And then I did athletic footwear and then I worked in socially responsible investing. And then, you know, so I've had lots of different chapters. So this particular purpose chapter is probably five years old. I hope I get another five years out of it before it becomes something else. Who knows? (laughs) Yes. That's like me. (laughs) I find new chapter all the time. (laughs) It's so fun to find new chapter. Do you, would you say that this kind of curiosity is like, I know that, you know, you talk about a lot of adaptability and adaptation. Um, and then we're going to talk about that in a moment when people try to find or hold on to the identity on uh, their job. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find it's also challenging to have too many interests or being too, too curious? Uh, probably not to be too curious, but being too sort of scattered, chasing in every direction and never really getting depth or traction um, can, can be a challenge for some folks. Um, in, in my case, sort of going in a bunch of different directions is, is actually what I do because then I can connect the dots across them and make sense for folks. So it that sort of plays into my hand, but that's not necessarily true for everybody. Yeah, you you don't get lost, right? So other people can get lost by chasing different things. But you is fun because you kind of connect the dots between all those explorations. Or that's what I tell myself. I mean, there are some days at the end of the day, I'm like, where did I really get today? I read a lot of interesting stuff. And maybe it was just I made I made a pile of things that are irrelevant and I've worked my way through them. But um, you, you've got to give yourself the ability to explore a little bit because you can't always be on the trail. You know, mm-hmm. you're looking for the trail or carving your new trail. Mm-hmm. So uh, what would you say that you have struggled with the most in life? Um, I think um, the, the the times I've struggled the hardest in my life is when I tried to get a job. <laughs> Honestly, when I tried to fit into an existing box, um, I've never had a problem finding work in my life. I've never had a problem making money in my life unless I decided to look for a job. And that just never worked for me. Mm. Why do you say, do you think so? Because I don't fit any, every box mm. is sort of like somebody's had these sequential sets of experience with these sequential bullet points and they, 
sort of are, are hitting certain hurdles. And I, I kind of, I've been going all over the place. So people don't, I mean, I, I remember talking to a headhunter once about a job and, and they, they thought I was right for the job. In fact, they picked me for the job, but they wanted to clean up my entire experience because it was too distracting to people, how many different things I'd done. And I thought, I'm just lucky they, I didn't end up taking the job because I thought it was a bad sign that they didn't appreciate my background. But, um, yeah, yeah. I think I think this can be quite, um, I, I think, part of the problem and something that you are also talking in the book about adaptation, when organization or corporates are looking for people who have this kind of linear path. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when you are saying no, okay, it's about adaptation and how you bring your learning, how you create your purpose and how you make sure that you can navigate. But bearing that in mind, is it really realistic or sometime very, very soon that we're going to see organization valuing these kind of types of people have different kind of scattered you know, or, or, you know, seemingly scattered kind of experience, but that kind of makes sense perhaps to do some kind of job. Um, because so, 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 so those people actually are the people who are struggling or who are leaving the corporate because they don't fit into the corporate culture. So how do you get the corporate? Because I come from that background as well. So I know so well what you're talking about. Um, and uh, so how do you make you know, those organizations who just want to be seen as agile or being seen as learning organization. But, you know, when they see somebody's CV or somebody who doesn't fit into that linear kind of path, but who may have the right skill for them for the future, what they need, how do you get them to realize that? Well, let's just take a pause and look at this particular moment we're in right now. We are in the largest scale social experiment in human history. Uh, the virus forced us to overnight change everything that we do in terms, including how we greet each other. We can't shake hands. We can't be near each other. We can't be in offices. We can't be in classrooms. Um, and so if you were looking for talent today, um, you'd be looking for somebody who can rapidly change with the environment. I mean, a lot of people are finding out that the team they had in the office in a set uh, job with a set role of skills, if that's changed, some of those people are, are falling apart, whereas other people are thriving in, in the, you know, sort of temporary chaos that this virus has bought. Because when you think about um, searching for jobs um, or searching for talent, from the time you say, I need, I have a need in my organization, I have a need for some new talent, to the time you get what I would call need relief, the distance between my two hands can be anywhere from two months to over a year, depending on the organization you're in. So, cause you've got to, you've defined the needs. So you got to get budget approval for it. You got a description. Where's it going to fit in the org chart? What, you know, what, uh, what skills are we looking for? What's our screening criteria? Then you open it up, you screen through the candidates, whether you do it internally or with a headhunter, then you settle on a candidate and negotiate, you bring them on board, you <laughs> upboard them, you onboard them. But the space between those two, Whatever needs you had here, we're mostly looking in the rearview mirror and you've sped up to over here and suddenly it's something very different. So screening for jobs based upon past skills and experience hasn't worked for quite a while. And I bet it's really not working in this virus moment. So looking at cultural alignment, cultural addition, 
uh, looking at somebody who's got sort of the base skills you need, but the ability to adapt, the inclination to adapt. Um, somebody who's got some cognitive diversity that checks your blind spots on your team, who has the right alignment to establish trust and psychological safety to work effectively in your teams. That's a different proposition than saying, I need somebody with these three bullet points who did this thing 10 years ago, who can do this thing five years from now, because whatever need you're looking for is inevitably going to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's good. That's good to address that one. Right. So um, now back to you. When actually was a time where you have reached a very low point in your life, but you got this aha moment that changed the course of your life? Uh, probably the last time I looked for a job, which was probably <laughs> um, 10, 15 years ago. I, I had done a series of things that seemed similar to me. So I thought finding a job in the next thing based on the prior things would be easy. Nobody saw it but me. I would apply for jobs. I wouldn't hear anything. I would network. I was irritating other people. I know that. Um, I was just sort of desperately trying to get my next job, even though I, there was opportunity all around me and I just wasn't mm. paying attention to it. Um, and I, it's when I stopped looking for a job and I said, okay, what is it that I do well? Where am I going to find opportunity? Where am I going to create opportunity? And also, where, how can I put my value out there now? Um, so that people can see it, engage in conversation, and then an opportunity will form around it. Because just that's the way I had gotten all my work prior to that. I had never mm -hmm. filled a box. So it was just, it was sort of demoralizing to have this. To, so for all the people out there going through the search process, it just sucks. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So if somebody is in your, in your shoes right now and also is sending a CV and then is actually hitting the same brick that you, yeah. you know, hit, what will be the first step you will advise somebody like that to do? Um, stop. I, this is my general consensus. Stop looking for a job that already exists and start creating one that's based upon your talent. So figure out what it is you do well, what kinds of things you do well, figure out what kinds of environments you want to work in, uh, network your way into those organizations. Don't go in and ask for a job, ask them what they're working on. What are they challenged by? Start putting yourself out there and making suggestions. We might do some free consulting work. I'm not suggesting everybody get into the position of working for free, but sometimes doing that or doing a consulting gig or doing some gig work gets you in the door. Um, depending on what level you're at in your career and what your network's like, it can happen really fast. It could take a while, but I guarantee you, you will find a, 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 an opportunity job or however it, whatever the form is that aligns with your values, that aligns with your self-expression, that aligns with your abilities. And when you form your own job, you form the best job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. So that means that obviously there is some work to do that I always talk about when I talk about my book, um, uh, Personal Branding in the Digital Age, is really making that skills inventory, that values inventory before and make sure that you're ready when you approach, um, you know, a new opportunity or you have a new opportunity come your way. Be, make sure that you are ready actually with those actually, um, you know, that's, that's so, so spot on. Um, so when you look back at your childhood, Heather, how would you say that it has prepared you to be who you are today? Um, I didn't grow up like the smartest kid in the room. I didn't grow up with like the best grades. I didn't grow up with most of those sort of superlatives. 
Um, because I think those can be traps, you know, people have mm. met as adults, you know, they were the smartest kid in their school. And so they carry that, that uh, superlative with them, even when the environment's changed and they're a much smaller fish in a much bigger pond. So, um, my parents were fantastic at just encouraging me to express myself in any way that I wanted to. Um, and if school was moving too slow, they would find, you know, places for me to go to get advancement. So I started taking like university classes when I was in, still in high school, but I didn't know that was unusual. It was just, you know, my parents sought out things that challenged and interest me. So I was supported to express myself in a variety of ways, but never given any sort of title that would become a trap. And I think that that has been really liberating for me. Mm, yeah, so that brings me actually straight away to this idea that you actually uh, also explore, uh, you know, wrote about in your book when you explain that actually people are, are twice affected emotionally by a loss of job than losing mm. a spouse. <laughs> so yeah. how do we get the courage then to let go of our occupational identity. I also wrote about that. Actually, interview somebody who, who, who talked about his experience about that in my book as well. But can you actually tell us how we can get let go of this occupational identity? What's the process? Well, we're all going to have to work on this together. So uh, <laughs> if we stop asking each other, what do you do? And maybe unemployment hitting, you know, 20% in the public numbers in the US, which is expected to next month, will mean fewer of us ask that stupid question that was never relevant <laughs> anyway, when we see each other, even if it's from six feet away, um, because it really doesn't mean anything. Instead, asking people what they're interested in, or ask them, tell me about yourself. There are lots of other ways we can have those questions. So the questioning, the social structures around those questioning is part of the problem. Um, the, the other part of the problem is that we've, um, had, we, I think we're retiring the idea of a single occupational identity, which will also help. We need to flood the, flood the gates with some new questions. Um, and we've got to come up with more structures that allow people to express themselves, but we've got to get past that, that question because it's, uh, it's daunting. And it was the, what works, uh, center, uh, for wellbeing in the UK that has one of those studies. There's a few of them that say that job loss can take twice as long to recover as the loss of a primary relationship. Some of it's financial, which is unavoidable, but a lot of it's psychological around identity. Mm. We've got to figure out new ways to build identity. We ought to be doing it with young people now, but we also need to be doing it with the workforce because we're going to go through a massive shift. You know, the um, 20% of jobs that, that were lost or whatever we think that number is going to be next month, how many of those are going to come back? How many of them are going to come back in the same way? So you can't like just, you're not pausing your identity until you get unfurloughed in, you know, three months, six months, whatever it is, you have this opportunity to rewrite your, your identity uh, in a way that's more true to you. And it's a little more internally validated. So one of the things I say is it's when it, when it's bestowed upon you, like with a job title or with a university degree or a trade union or what, however it is you work, it can be taken away, but it's internally validated. It's more resilient and you're in more control of it. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, on that note, actually, how would you say that employers can help employees also to figure out their purpose as well, to make sure that, you know, because obviously when you get your purpose, you, you, you have something bigger than your job because you have a, this bigger, um, you know, uh, purpose and which is much more. Do employer have interest 
helping their employee find their purpose. Yeah. So the best companies out there are the companies that are learning and adapting at the speed of change or ahead of it. And so in order to learn and adapt at the speed of change and ahead of it, then prior to the virus, the drive main driver was technology. Now we've got the virus pushing and then technology enabling the, the rate in which we change. Um, so the organizations that thrive are ones that can learn and adapt the fastest. How do you learn and adapt the fastest? A company is just a collection of individuals. Mm-hmm. So if you're not interested in the people in your organization finding their purpose and embarking on learning journeys, then you're just going to be cycling through people all the time because you'll always be lunging at that next skill set you need and never developing the culture that allows you to thrive. So one of the things Chris and I say in the book, and we've written articles about it, is we think the core focus of every company should be your culture and your capacity. So mm-hmm. your culture is how you allow things to happen how you encourage things to happen in your organization. And your brand is simply an external expression of your culture. And your capacity is just really how you solve a challenge, how you create value. And you've got to focus on constantly increasing and upskilling your capacity and nurturing your culture. If you do those two things, brands, products, services are all exhaust from your learning that work themselves out. Mm-hmm. What would you say to some companies out there? I can hear them already <laughs> being saying that, well, what if I help them finding their purpose and then they leave? I, I, I'm just kind of, um, you know, <laughs> um, you know, helping them to, you know, empowering them, you know, just to leave. What would you say about that? I think it's along the same lines as that sort of that supposed conversation between a CEO and a CFO where the CFO says, what if we train all these people and they leave? And the CEO says, what if we don't train them and they stay? (laughs) So who cares? If they leave, if if you make a really good company, one of the interviews in the book is Carol Lehman from Exonify. And she says, I want every employee when they leave here whenever they leave here to say that this is the best place they've ever worked and sometimes people have to leave have other experiences and many of them uh, i welcome back because they're going to bring those experiences back here so we should stop try to tightly hold on to people Mm -hmm. let them flourish and create an environment they want to come back to Mm, yeah 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 so um another um uh, i um you know idea that you also wrote in the book i like to explore you say that new times call for new approach for leadership and the best leaders are constant learners mm-hmm. unafraid to be vulnerable in mm-hmm. pursuit of increasing their team capacity tell us more about vulnerability and how we can you know express that without you know shooting something in our foot actually <laughs> yeah sure so the the master of vulnerability is Brene Brown so we call yes. in there of course and, and many of you guys have I'm sure read her books but um she talks about vulnerability being, being the birthplace of creativity and courage and and strength really and and I agree with her on that um if you're leading an organization and you are concealing the things you don't know <laughs> if you're trying to hide whether it's skills or knowledge you don't have insecurities you might possess you're signaling to everybody to work f- who works for you on your team or works with you on your team to hide the things they don't know. And when you do that, you're creating a massive weakness in your organization that's going to become evident at some point. Now flip that around. If you say to the people on your team, now you don't have to overshare, you don't have to tell them everything, but just say, you know what? I don't know about this. I'm going to need to rely on you guys. Or I think this is wrong and I think we should fix it. Um, Dr. Amy Edmondson, who coined the term psychological safety, did it by studying medical teams. And she found the medical teams that had the 
the fewest catastrophic errors had the most small errors, but they would immediately say, listen, we made a mistake. Let's look at it. Let's figure it out. Let's make it a source of learning. And that was creating a space of safety, a space of vulnerability, a space of trust so that everybody could sort of bring their best and then sort of learning, failure through learning, using that failures or mistakes as a basis for learning and a basis for adapting. Yeah, so that's cool. So now let's talk about money, money part uh, in um, um, the, um, you know, this conversation, meaningful work, meaningful life. Um, let's um, actually um, explore this. I always often ask, there are some people actually who really love what they are doing, but mm -hmm. get very little pay for that. Mm -hmm. And then other people get a lot of money, but, you know, don't really, really like what they do. How can we both do what we love and get paid well for it? Well, I think that's just sort of an adjustment. What are the things you hate about what you do? How can you dial them back? How can you shift them differently? I mean, there is, we do live on a fortunate reality that we live in a capitalist society where there's a market value placed on certain things. Now that may be shifting in the last. Yes, so exactly. That is, that is something that we, we need to figure out actually. <laughs> yeah. Cause I remember on um, the, the director producer, Shonda Rhimes, who uh, put on Twitter, like, Two days after the lockdown, she said, I've been teaching a six-year-old and an eight-year-old for an hour now, and I think teachers should make a billion dollars an hour. Because <laughs> she was like, there's never been probably a greater appreciation for teachers than there are in this. And, and, and all those people, they are calling key workers, you know, are yes. they very low-paid people. Right. So here in the U.S., we could couldn't imagine fifteen dollars in U.S. dollars an hour for a grocery store worker or Amazon delivery person or whatever the essential job yeah, are that right the, now. The, the, doctors, the nurses, the nurses. Yeah, well, the nurse, yeah, the nurses are a different thing. But I mean, the the the, the fifteen dollar an hour thing was a massive fight here, and now um, the going rate's about nineteen dollars an hour, like without question. So it's how quickly. Uh, this changing context can change our perspective on it. And then nurses and doctors. And, you know, I was reading an article the other day about when we do go back to a, a working together in, in a specific place, which will vary by your industry and why you need to get together, how the janitors and the cleaning staff are going to be the essential workers that we are going to appreciate because it used to be that they came in to collect the trash, you know, wiped a few things down, vacuumed the floors. We didn't treat them very well. We didn't think we were that important. Now they are life or death. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing a lot of shift in what we valued before. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you got to pay attention to those, to those market realities because there's often you can't shift them, but you can shift how you express yourself to better align with whatever compensation you're seeking to achieve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So w w now, um, when um, in this COVID time, where do you see the most opportunities um, right now in the marketplace and how can we spot them? Well, I think there is, for example, we're doing this through, what's the name of the product? The StreamYard is that what we're using? StreamYard. StreamYard, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a, a ton of these platforms. I don't know who does it the best. I think that we're going to rapidly evolve those platforms. You know, if we're going to have to stay apart for, say, it's another six months, say it's another year, say it's another year, whatever the time period is until we, we have a vaccine or we have otherwise eradicated the majority of this virus, we need better communication tools. We need better delivery services. We need better design for grocery stores and restaurants. And we've got to rethink everything. So anybody who wants to be any part of that, there's, I think, unending opportunity there. 
<laughs> That's awesome. So, um, so now, um, you know, again, we talk about the business model, traditional business model also have been, um, are, are going to change, you know, on the top of all those tech and uh, digital platform, technology platform that are really like booming right now. How do we think of those traditional business models um, and adapting or pivoting them actually to adapt in this, um, you know, new era that we are we are living in. Some kind of brick and mortars now who are actually have to find their way online or find some element of uh, digital um, to deliver what they are doing right now. Right. So uh, first, it's important to understand what a business model is. I think people confuse business model, financial model, and business plan. Three different things, but they're related. And I use an analogy to describe them. So the business model is like the engine of your car. It's how you propel yourself forward. Your financial model is your fuel source, how you propel yourself forward. And then your business plan is the road you're going on. So when it comes to business models, most of our industries that are hurting right now are dependent upon scale. Like a restaurant only works when it's 75% capacity and that's when they start becoming profitable. Or, you know, uh, a clothing store only works when they move a certain amount of uh, volume or product or, a, you know, a sporting event only works when the theater is X percent full or X percentage of people are watching it online. Given that scale, how can you replace scale with something else? Scale is a, is a business model driver. If scale is not possible, except for virtual right now, what are the in-person experiences you can have? What are the bespoke opportunities where you can use data to better understand things? Like, for example, my mother owns a small boutique clothing store in Florida. Um, she's trying to figure out what to do with her store. She doesn't want to turn it into an all online thing because it's the experience of going into her store. And so she's going to have very strict protocols where people have meetings and it's going to be more about personal shopping and it's going to be a different experience with a sort of one or two people at a time with a very strict cleaning protocols, but it's still going to have that value, but maybe even more value because it's going to be a personalized experience. So how are the ways we can think about when we need to be in person or we need to be sort of in real life for the experience how do we enhance it to make it more meaningful, more profitable, et cetera, so that that business model still works in some way with a tweak? Mm, yes, I totally get that. You know, that will be so much um, the thinking that many businesses have to do this. They actually really thinking how they can shift that, because if um, we stay in lockdown and you have a capacity for only 15, you know, let's say you are a restaurant, you have only 15 uh, table and then you have to do this social distancing. And now you can only put seven people. How to yeah. make that happen yeah right so um now let's talk about movement which movement are you leading or are you know part of or would you like to be part of uh i think the potential of humans i think that we need some champions for humans i say i'm a, a champion for humans in the learning centric future future of work so it's not humans versus machines it's humans augmented by machines i think we got you know, we created these tools to serve us. They shouldn't enslave us. Mm -hmm. um, the virus will not enslave us. It's it's causing us to make some adaptations that are making us more aware and grateful about some things we had taken for granted. Um, one of the things I've been saying is I think this is the third existential crisis of our lifetime. First one was climate change. Second one was income inequality. And then the third one being this virus where we have 
temporarily anyway, put people over profit. We have suspended our economies to protect our most vulnerable. And in that process, we're starting to really realize what we were doing to the planet. We're also starting to really realize uh, we can't not pay attention to income inequality anymore. So we have the potential to build a much better world. And I use the analogy that we're standing on the bank of a raging river and we've been going down this path, not really paying attention to the quality of the path for everybody. And a lot of people have their eyes fixed on the sort of swirling eddies that could kill you rather than picking their gaze up and looking at the other side of the river and how we're going to get there because we have made progress. We've already started crossing that river. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been in, I think we're in our 62nd day of lockdown here in Boston. We have flattened the curve. We've flattened the curve in, in New York. We've flattened the curve a lot of places. We are getting this under control and communities are participating like I've yeah. never seen before. Yeah. Uh, I say the only thing going faster than the virus is our collective sense of empathy and our ability to collaborate. Yeah. yeah. Um, anthropologist Mar Margaret Mead was asked, what was the um, sign of uh, a civilization? Uh, and was it, you know, clay pots or religious items or hunting tools? And she said it was the, a healed human femur bone. Mm. Because in order to <laughs> heal your leg bone, you have to rest and somebody else has to hunt for you and fish for you and, and provide for you. In this virus, in this pause, this is our moment to rethink our civilization and create mm. more healed femur bones so that we unleash the potential of more of us. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. What? How do you want to be remembered for? Well, I hope I get a little bit more time on this year so I don't have to be remembered right away. <laughs> uh, I, I hope my my the family remembers me for uh, having a lot of fun with me. I hope my friends uh, who, who go after me remember me for the fun we had together. I, I wrote this book with uh, Chris because we really hope that we can make uh, an impact on the world by having more people focus on their purpose and their ability to adapt rather than a set future self, which will be kind of a dead end. Mm -hmm. So those, those mm -hmm. are ways. Yeah. So that's cool. So um, what did you learn? Would you say from all of your experience that you most want to transmit to others? Uh, you have no idea your potential yet. I don't know who you are out there who's listening, but I guarantee you, you just started scratching the surface of your potential and that we are a highly adaptive species. Look at what we've done in the face of this virus to adapt, to save lives, to flatten the curve, to protect your healthcare workers, to teach each other online, to become teachers, to become coworkers remotely asking how you, we are doing to become a better society. We're just getting started. Mm, yes, I totally agree. So uh, what would you say is your definition of meaningful work, meaningful life? Uh, meaningful work is, is uh, it, it's an alignment uh, between self-expression and feeling like, I think compensation is a piece of it, just a feeling like your self-expression is rewarded in the world and that you, so that you can have a meaningful life, however you define it, you're not, uh, you're not struggling, uh, you're not psychologically imprisoned, you're not demoralized, but you're energized by what you do and you feel proud of what you do and you feel uh, a true sense of self-expression and a feeling that you're compensated fairly enough to do the other things you want to do when you're not expressing yourself in work. 
Yeah, so that's it. You know, you feel energized enough and you feel that you are compensated well enough. That's great. So do you have any useful, or you know, model or framework that our listeners can take away to really start applying in their life today to really leave this adaptation mindset that you talk about in your book? Well, first you buy the book. <laughs> yes, that's totally sure <laughs> actually a bunch of free free articles we write online as well but if you want to write the book um tell tell me what you think about it but i think it's just thinking about i like to kate kate O'Keefe from cisco's chill you know think about yourself like a, a prototype and put yourself into more experiences uh go into it unafraid and willing to learn and realize that you're just getting started and so much of your potential no matter where you are in your life is is probably ahead of you Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now can you share some resources that our listeners should absolutely know about <laughs> when uh, to live their best life now? Obviously, the book is going to be a yeah. part of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, Chris and I both write a lot of stuff on, on LinkedIn. We share articles. So follow us uh, there because we just freely share. And most of the stuff that we share is free without, you know, we try to do stuff without paywalls. Um, there's, uh, a newsletter called brain food that, um, Hung Lee produces and it comes out every Sunday. Uh, we've got a newsletter that comes out every two weeks called the adaptation advantage, where we tell you the best stuff we're reading out there. Um, if you go on heathermcgowan.com or the adaptation, adaptation there are more resources there as well. So all of that stuff is, is, is free. Uh, drop us a note if you want to talk to us and, um, good luck. Oh, so and then how how can people reach you, um, you know, to learn more? Um, you know, what's the best way that uh, people can reach you? Heather E. McGowan on LinkedIn or heathermcgowan.com is my personal website as well. Either one of those. Okay, good. Great. So thank you so much, Heather, for really sharing your gems and your thoughts uh, with our listeners today. And uh, really thank you for really being part of this uh, Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast. Thanks so much for having me. If you are ready to discover how to develop your unique value and become a leading voice in your industry in today's fast-moving marketplace, make more money and make a bigger impact, I invite you to book a call with me today to discuss your objectives at francinebelli.com slash call. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-N-E-B-E-L-E-Y-I.com slash call. Thank you for listening. The show notes of this episode of Meaningful Work and Meaningful Life are available on my webpage, francinebelli.com slash podcast with all the references and the resources shared on this show. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to show your love and support, share it with your friends and colleagues on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Make sure also you subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the app where you are listening to this podcast so you don't miss any new episodes and leave me an honest review because it will mean that I will be able to touch more people who are going to be able to see this podcast in front of them. I will see you next week for another brand new episode of this season six. Until then, dream, act, and make an impact. Lots of love.